Morena, good morning. I find uh, Peter the Apostle, we're going to follow through to X 12 in this series, to be a really interesting character. He's passionate, he's idealistic, he's impulsive. To be honest with you, I'm glad he doesn't work for me, because it'd be a right pain to try and lead or manage someone like that. He acts first and he sort of thinks about it later on. Do you know people like that? <laughs> Jeff. Are you a person like that, Douglas? <laughs> Jeff. This week I went to a Christian art exhibition. I think it's still going on in the Cube Gallery in High Street. And they had this picture up. It's quite a unique perspective. It's Peter underwater. You know, he jumped out of the boat and walked along the top of the water until he wasn't anymore. He looked around, his faith wavered, and he sank. And Jesus reached down and saved him from drowning. And it's the same perspective as that song we just sung, Oceans, which I think is a neat song. Peter's enthusiasm that day exceeded his faith. I love, though, the look of love that Jesus gave him in this painting. I'd love to get a print of it for the Opawa art collection, but it's a bit expensive, so it's my new Facebook cover. Yet Peter, for all his failings, became one of Jesus in a circle, sort of like his chief of staff or, or senior Indian. He was there at the Transfiguration and all the big moments of Jesus' ministry. And it's his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, he was the first person to recognize that and to say it out loud. Jesus clearly saw a lot in him and in what he could be. Now, after Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane, Peter boldly follows the temple guards alone back to the temple courts where Jesus has been held. And when challenged by a servant girl, he famously says three times, oh, look, I don't know this man, Jesus. And realizing that he committed a great betrayal, he slinks off into a corner again by himself. He misses the crucifixion because of his combination of fear, shame. Unlike Judas, his failing was one of human weakness and fear. So he was able to move from remorse to repentance. Judas not so much, because his failing was a hidden agenda that was frustrated. He went from remorse to suicidal despair. Not a lot of hope there. After Jesus' resurrection, he recommissions Peter on the beach at Galilee to be the shepherd of, his, of the people of God. And that was the calling that ultimately cost him his life. No small thing. Well, after Jesus' ascension back to the right hand of God the Father, Peter and the apostles gathered in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost and boomfa. And it's all happening. 
The promised Holy Spirit descends on them and they are reborn from above, praising God in languages that they did not know. It's an extraordinary miracle. But Peter, standing with the eleven, not alone this time, which is significant, he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Side note, he, he's, here he is, he's acting as first amongst equals, not a lone ranger anymore. That's big, because one of the themes of his life is he gets in trouble when he acts alone, before and after. But what presence of mind and vision he has at this moment. He and the other Jesus followers have just experienced the most profound encounter with God by the Holy, his Holy Spirit. But he doesn't sit there and try to hold on to that marvelous moment. He sees here there's a chance to connect with the crowd who are watching to make sense of what they're seeing and hearing. So he asks himself, as we all do in those moments, what would Doug McConnell do right now? So no notes, no preparation, no thought. He opens his mouth and he goes for it. And listen to it, because it's extraordinary. Men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Now being drunk was no explanation for the miraculous thing that the crowd had just witnessed. They've heard God being praised in languages from a bunch of ill-educated Galilean peasants. But Peter doesn't mock them. He just says, look, the sun's nowhere near the yard arm, is it? Far too early. We're not drunk. And then he dives headfirst into Scripture. No, this is what has spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter says, we're not drunk. God's spirit has been poured out upon us as was prophesied by Joel. He's leapt into the prophetic tradition that his audience was steeped in as from mother's milk. Now in art, Pentecost is sometimes portrayed as just the remaining 11 apostles get going through this experience. But I think this quote suggests it was a whole community. Maybe 120 people, young, old, male, female, slave and free, are all going to receive God's spirit. Not just the kings and priests and the special people, like in the previous era. Peter goes on. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So here we have in Scripture the first proclamation of the Christian gospel. Jeff made the very good point last week that in Scripture, the miraculous often functions as a sign. Here Peter is claiming that Jesus' miracle working during his ministry pointed to God's hand being upon him. And it interests me that he doesn't feel the need to argue any further. He just says, you yourselves know what he did. You saw, just like we did. Then it's straight into the statements that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And in this whole sermon, resurrection is the deal, more so than crucifixion. Forgiveness and sin are mentioned later on, but it's the expression of God's power over death. That's the divine plan. Death has been conquered. Booyah! Now back to scripture, Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. Peter here co-ops David as the prophetic speaker for Jesus, who was not in the grave long enough to experience decay. Now, all of the that original audience would have known that the Messiah was to be a descendant of David. Peter is basing his proclaimed gospel in their shared story. Peter continues. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So in other words, he's saying to them, what you've seen here today is a sign that Jesus has been lifted up next to the Father, and together they have sent the Spirit upon us. This is what it means. Then he's back again to Scripture, to 110. He, he never strays very far away. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, you've got to get the perspective here. A couple of weeks before, Jesus was too scared, Peter was too scared, excuse me, to confess to a servant girl that he even knew Jesus. And here he is standing up in front of all the powers and proclaiming that Jesus is now in the right hand of God. What a transformation. Now when the crowd heard all of this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptised and on that day about 3,000 people were added. And when Stephen and I were talking about this, we thought 3,000 baptisms, that must have been an administrative nightmare. Spot the person who's worked for a church. Here is the first mention of forgiveness and the proclamation that what they have seen. God's Spirit coming on all believers. For all who believed then, and thereafter, in other words, us. I suspect that Peter probably implicitly assumed that all people meant all Jews, but that issue would be dealt with later on. Peter, inspired by the Spirit, proclaims the death, resurrection of, and exaltation of Jesus based on the experience of those there hearing him many of whom had seen and heard Jesus, all of whom had seen that first miracle in Pentecost. But it's experience being interpreted in the light of Scripture, both working together. And I think, when I, when I think about this at our worst, I think there's a tendency for Pentecostal people to default to their experience as the sole measure of truth, and the more conservative to the Scriptures with no reference to lived realities. At our best, we need to bring those two limbs together. It's a two-winged plane. Scripture and our experience, and to understand each in the light of the other. Now, a while back, segue, the James Webb Telescope was launched into space. This thing. And it's much more powerful than the Hubble Telescope. And you can see that because that is a picture from Hubble and that is a picture from Webb. Look at it. That looks like a window that's been cleaned about a month ago. That looks like a window that's never been cleaned. Lots more detail because Hubble apparently picks up infrared and stuff. It can see galaxies that are much further away, relatively early in their lives. 
Apparently that little red blob there is the oldest known galaxy in the universe. Just been seen recently. Now the thing of it is that it's taken gazillions of years for the light to get from where it is to here. So actually what we're seeing is the deep past. And it's so far away that it's in the first period after, first period, billion years, after creation. And what's happened to all the astronomical geeks is they're in a bit of a lather. Because their whole chronology of how the universe was created does not fit what they're seeing now in the pictures. The galaxy types are all wrong. The stars are the wrong age. Do a YouTube search if you're interested. I find it fascinating. But I reckon reading um, Acts 2 is a little bit like a James Webb snapshot. We're looking into our origin story on day dot. And what can we see? Well, here's what I see. Peter refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the saviour and redeemer of the world, the second person of the divine trinity, that is God, the creator and sustainer of everything, as this Jesus. Which is a bit like saying, you know, that bloke over there, standing next to the woman with the long hair and the unfortunate laugh. Yeah, yeah, him. That's God. This Alan, that Jan, this management, he's one of us. A person like you or I in everyone's recent memory. Peter is saying that he knew him and many of you listening to me today saw him work miracles too. Then he quotes from the Old Testament. And he uses the word Lord when referring to Jesus. Now when a Roman citizen swore that Caesar was Lord, it had divine connotations because the emperor was revered as a god. Yahweh, the God of Israel, was Lord of all, yet Peter uses Lord and Jesus interchangeably. So here on day dot of the Christian church, Jesus Christ is implicitly being proclaimed as both man and God. I don't know if they got their heads around it at that time. They probably hadn't. But from those seeds, later on would grow the doctrine of the Trinity. So there's my first observation. Jesus is both human and divine. The one on the right is sort of an artist's impression of what Jesus might look like. And the one on the left is Christ the Redeemer looking over Rio Harbour. He's both human and divine, sometimes called a God-man. The church has been proclaiming that truth since the very beginning. Second thing that we can see across two millennia of time and culture, I think, is the inevitability that Christianity would emerge from Judaism. The Jewish people were looking forward to a Messiah who would be a priest king, a bit, a bit like King David had been, and he'd usher in a golden age for the nation of Israel. To them, a dead, shamed Messiah was like fried ice. Or like a fair-minded and impartial Cantabrian. A contradiction in terms. Didn't happen. You didn't get dead messiahs. Whereas Jesus the Messiah will flip 
He came to redeem humanity and creation from sin by conquering death and ushering in a new age. His mission was a much wider, much deeper project than putting Israel back on the path to national greatness. The traditional Jewish worldview was turned on its head by what Peter said that day, which I think was quite prophetic because it took him personally years to catch up in his own thinking with what he said that morning. It's clear to me the Spirit inspired him to say those things. He, he just wasn't there. His prophetic preaching shows some of the strings of God working out this plan of salvation to save his creation to himself, including the Gentiles in the plan and creating a whole new faith community, I think, are implicit here on day one. So, second observation. Christianity, as it later became known, was clearly not a sect of Judaism, but something quite distinct, albeit with common roots. And the third and last observation, there's always three, it's a Baptist thing, it's in the Bible somewhere, that occurs to me in this telescoped lens picture is that from day one there has been the expectation that Jesus' second coming was very near. Don't make long-term plans. Peter quotes Joel's prophecy about these days being the, the last days. Yet 1,990-odd years later, we're still here. Where are you, son? I was talking to someone last year who was amazed that I didn't think that the second coming was imminent. Apparently COVID was going to make it all happen. She didn't seem to realise that the question has been asked for, two centuri for centuries, actually two millennia now. Jesus' resurrection sort of inserted a new messianic age into the then prevailing worldview. The, the day of the Lord, what we call Judgment Day, and the resurrection of all the dead was sort of pushed out to later on. Hence Jesus came announcing that the kingdom had come, but also praying for it to come. It's often described as, by theologians as we live in the now but not yet. The kingdom is in breaking as the first fruits, but it isn't here in all its fullness yet. We live in that space between the start and the completion. So one day everybody will be healed. But now sometimes we're healed when we are prayed for, but most times not. Sometimes our prayers are answered, and sometimes not. Doug rightly pointed out last week that Pentecostal people can find that frustrating. So we'll sometimes go looking for unconfessed sin when someone is not healed. A form of victim blaming or shaming. Yet on the other side, more conservative people can lose any expectation of God acting today at all. Both of those tendencies are wrong. God is God. God acts when he decides to act but is vitally interested and involved in all our lives despite sometimes appearances of the contrary. Some years ago, I was at a church camp, and I came across one of our older guys in some pain. He'd aggravated a, a back injury. He'd been driving his Jeep around with a donut behind it, and all the kids were sort of hanging on for dear lives, and they had a great time, but in the twisting and turning to see if they were still on, 
He'd injured himself. Like you did this morning, I offered to pray for him and lay hands on him. And he said, sure. A while later, after I'd finished my prayer, I opened my eyes and found that his was still firmly shut. I asked him, you okay? And he said, you've got hot hands. I said, they feel fine to me. He experienced immediate pain relief. He was healed. He was also a GP. And explained to me that it couldn't be psychosomatic because what he was sensing wasn't following the track of the nerves in his back. Gave my expectations of God showing up and doing stuff a real fillip, a real boost. And it was also a sign for me that God hadn't forgotten about me. See, I was in quite a bad space at the time. Now, I may be theologically conservative, but I've experienced God acting in and around and through my life many, many times. So third and final observation. Jesus will return. History does have an end point at which everything will be put right and made whole. But in the meantime, as Peter said, we are to repent and live out our baptismal vows to follow him. Here in Acts 2 is the basic Christian call articulated on day dot. That first day of Pentecost ushered in a whole new way that God related to his creation. It was a signpost to all who are near or far that he wants to save and equip us all by his Spirit. I think we can have confidence based on this deep dive into Christian history that Jesus has always been central both in his humanity and his divinity. We are meant to be focused on his return. C.S. Lewis, one of my favourite authors, described it as you, you live with one eye on eternity and the other eye on the next step that you've got to take in life. And we are also meant to faithfully follow our calling, day by day, no matter what. And when we doubt or struggle, and both of those things will happen, they're a normal part of human experience, know that Jesus, our great high priest, is always praying for us. has never stopped. Lean into his spirit and his people for strength. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the rich tradition that we are part of. That we stand on the shoulders of giants like Peter and the others that have gone before us. Lord, help us to be there for each other to support each other, to encourage each other, to love each other. And help us to make space for those who aren't yet here, especially those who may be different from us in culture, in 
sexuality, whatever. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.